Mouse to Mouse, Episode 4, Dreams, Themes and Schemes. Let me begin by saying that while I may have been born and brought up in London, and now live in a town called Chessington that has its very own theme park, Chessington World of Adventures, which is actually owned by Merlin, the world's second largest themed entertainment company, I've always regarded Florida's Walt Disney World to be my home park. Visits to our local park are pretty much confined to the four free tickets that we as residents get every year. I certainly don't own an annual pass, and to date, I think it's accurate to say that even though it requires the best part of nine hours on a plane and a sizable proportion of my salary to get there, as opposed to a 15-minute stroll, my family and I have spent more time in the Magic Kingdom than we have experiencing the adventures available at Chessington's World. I've already mentioned that I first visited Walt Disney World as an 11-year-old, and I think the fact that I am currently writing a book about this particular road trip in Odyssey is something of a testament to the impact that my first look at the place had on me. Compared to the grey skies and mundanity of everyday life in a London suburb, Orlando, Florida is the very definition of an exotic destination. The unfamiliar climate of sweltering heat with daily torrential rain, as opposed to three glimpses of sun a year through a general fug of drizzle, the amusement of hearing local people complaining about the price of things that compared to the surgical arm and leg removal that would be required to afford the same thing in London are almost a giveaway. And the general exoticising of the other that goes with any visit to somewhere new and different confirms that this is the case. On the off chance that I haven't managed to convey it strongly enough to you yet, Orlando is a veritable fantasy island to a grown-up kid from southwest London. But here's the thing. If travelling to Walt Disney World is like a trip to a desert island, going to Disneyland is akin to visiting the moon. Disney World may be the outcome of some of Walt's biggest dreams, but Disneyland is the place in which he dreamt them. And for this reason alone, it bestows a trip to Anaheim with a degree of historical authenticity that Florida can't really muster. Ask the average Joe or Joanne on the street where Mickey Mouse lives, and they will, after giving you an odd sideways glance, invariably reply, Disneyland. Ask them what the name of the theme park with the castle at the end of Main Street is called, and you'll get the same answer. And it probably won't change if you show them a picture that features Cinderella rather than Sleeping Beauty Castle. While you and I may know the difference to the vast majority of normal people, and much to my chagrin, when reading essays from undergraduates who have spent a semester taking my Disney course, the Magic Kingdom is a name that loosely translates in the popular consciousness to Disneyland, Florida. Disneyland as a name is iconic. It features liberally in popular culture. How often have you heard, maybe even said yourself, that something or somewhere is like Disneyland for X or Y group of people? As I write this, Jurassic World is the current hit summer blockbuster, visually borrowing elements like monorails from Disney parks. But one of the things, maybe unsurprisingly given my particular proclivities, that has always stuck in my mind from the original Spielberg movie was the invocation of Disneyland in an exchange of dialogue between Richard Attenborough's John Hammond and the wisecracking Dr. Ian Malcolm, as portrayed by Jeff Goldblum. In justifying the teething problems of his park, Hammond claims that This is just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks have delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked. And this, of course, is why Jurassic Park was an entirely fanciful and scientifically inaccurate piece of work. Never mind all that resurrecting dinosaurs using ants in amber business. 
The real issue here is that surely all self-respecting Disney students, and that of course basically includes anyone who's ever been a kid, knows that Walt's Wonderland in Anaheim opened its gates on July 17th, 1955. So that means even with my wonky arithmetic that I have calculated, and let's be honest, it wasn't exactly difficult given the level of ballyhoo around the event, that our visit to the happiest place on earth at the start of August 2015 will rather conveniently coincide with its 60th birthday. This means that Disney, being amongst the long list of other things the world's greatest promotion engine, have a host of celebrations and extravaganzas planned for the entire year. But I would like to think that, to paraphrase Waldo, the spirit of 3D in Muppet Vision, while everyone who visits will think the mouse is talking to them, they're really doing it all in honour of the start of our quest. This, of course, is one of those indefinable qualities that contributes towards the existence of the much-celebrated Disney magic that sets it apart from the ever-growing list of competitors. Yes, it's true that a single-day ticket to Disneyland have increased from being a dollar in 1955, although you did have to buy a book of eight tickets for $2.25 to ride anything, and then additional tickets when they ran out, to just shy of 100 in 2015. While factoring in inflation means that it isn't quite the 100% increase that it seems, in fact, in these terms, the cost is roughly three times what it was on opening day, a trip to Disneyland is still a pretty pricey proposition. But as Stephen M. Fjellman observes in his academic study of its sister resort in Orlando, Vinyl Leaves, Walt Disney World in America, in order to continue to live up to the magical reputation that Uncle Walt established, Disney have to perform a delicate balancing act between, to use the rather depressing modern mantra, maximising profits for its shareholders, and making each guest feel like the prince or princess that the Fantasyland restroom label suggests. And do you know what? Apart from the odd moment when the dollar signs in their eyes allow a visitor the briefest glimpse of the Matrix in its raw form, they pull it off almost flawlessly, with a flourish and a sprinkling of pixie dust. A strange kind of alchemy occurs when you pass through that tunnel under the railroad track that somehow separates your rational adult mind from the impossibly excited child that still lurks, hidden away in even the most jaded of grown-ups. My kids, in common with pretty much all of their peers, have absolutely no understanding of what things cost, and quite rightly, simply see whatever is in front of them as an experience to be enjoyed. Once inside Disneyland, this impulse is magnified so that their personal adolescent bubble of desire begins to expand, until eventually it encompasses the entire family. Whereas in the real world, the physics, and more scientifically the song lyrical reference to bubbles, dictates that they rise for a while, and then just like our dreams, they fade and die. Any child or child at heart can tell you that inside the Disneyland berm, dreams have a strange way of coming true. This of course means that until you leave the world of yesterday, tomorrow and fantasy, and maybe look at a bank statement, you'll rise within that bubble, glancing back at the sober adult that has been wearing your skin, and just like the kids, your native currency will cease to be dollars, euros or pounds and will suddenly become dreams, desires and impulses. How else can you explain all those grown men and women gleefully handing over their hard-earned for goofy hats and mini mouse ears? It's not that you become unable to realise that cash is leaving your pockets on a regular basis. It's quite apparent to all but the most absent-minded that the Disney vacation dollar seems somehow to be a subspecies of the currency butterfly that has distinctly shorter lifespans than its distant cousin, the common household budget. 
The expert financial lepidopterist will tell you, however, that this particular genus counts amongst its defence mechanisms the ability to stun its handler into a temporary sense of reckless abandon that will only dissipate on re-entry into the ranks of the working stiff. In short, once you get to Disneyland, you will spend a small fortune on things that there is every chance you don't and never will need. But you'll have so much fun doing it that you probably won't care a jot. So it was then that we found ourselves stood in line at a Will Call window in the watery early morning Californian sunshine to pick up our tickets to the promised land on the morning of the first real day of this mouse-to-mouse adventure. At this stage, the open road was still some distance away in a Tomorrowland that, at the same time I longed for, but didn't want to come too quickly as it would mean that we would be leaving this most original of all Disney resorts behind. Immediately ahead of us were three days in which to try to attempt the almost impossible task of taking in everything that the world's most celebrated and well-preserved 60-year-old had to offer. Already we had journeyed the best part of five and a half thousand miles to be standing here on this spot. We were, of course, the beneficiaries of some newly acquired aches and pains that are generously offered as a free post-flight gift after almost 12 hours in an economy seat on even the most modern of aeroplanes. We then participated in what has become something of a Brooks family tradition, the sleep-free first night on vacation, which also features a game of musical beds that by turns saw pretty much every member of the family testing out each of the two queen beds that the Ayers Hotel Anaheim provided in our, it must be said, very comfortable hotel room. Not that this was news to me, but the reader may be interested to note that I am at any moment expecting a phone call from the good people at Guinness to confirm that my son Tyler is in fact the world's greatest fidget. As I ended up spending the vast majority of the night with his arms, feet and head strategically being thrust into various parts of my body. Indeed, during one particularly entertaining interlude, he somehow managed to burrow his way underneath the pillow in which my exceedingly weary head was attempting to rest, only to whip it away like a conjurer in some silent movie, removing the tablecloth whilst leaving the dinner intact. I was, of course, the dinner in this scenario, but the analogy sadly breaks down at the point of the intact part, as my head, swiftly followed by the remainder of my body, made an early exit off the side of the bed. The fact that he should manage to perform such a feat of strength and dexterity whilst fast asleep, only to then miraculously be wide awake enough to initiate a lively chat with his old and rapidly feeling even older dad, moments after I had remounted the bed, tossed and turned for an age and then finally nodded off, just makes the entire episode even more impressive. I do wonder if our general sleeplessness may have been some kind of post-traumatic stress reaction to the experience of the drive-in from Los Angeles International Airport to Anaheim. After what had in truth been an extremely smooth, if very tiring flight, we were then, after an extended wait in unsuitable attire for the midday California heat, what is it they say about mad dogs and Englishmen? Treated to an e-ticket thrill ride that none of us had expected. The driver began our acquaintance by attempting to convince me that I needed to advance him a supplement to my original prepaid transfer because the tickets I had purchased had been for four adults, while my son, at four years old, was obviously a child. Now, I'm certainly no mathematical protégé, but since a child's ticket was in fact a good deal less expensive than that of an adult, it stood to reason in my admittedly flight-ravaged mind that he was clearly either a con man, a lunatic, or deeply incompetent. Since he continued to pursue this attempted money-making scheme, even after I had made it abundantly apparent that the chances of him obtaining extra dollars from my wallet were roughly equal to those of me being elected president, 
I was beginning to suspect that he might actually be all three in equal measure. Even when he did eventually accept that I understood the meaning of fixed-rate fare and began welcoming us into his minivan like long-lost members of his family, presumably in the hope that he may recover in tip what he had missed out on in poorly executed con, it did leave me slightly perturbed about in whom exactly I was placing the safety of my family's transportation. By this point, however, with our body clock still somewhere in London, it was way past our bedtime, and not being in the airport anymore was pretty high on the list of our heart's desires. So, in we all climbed, and after the requisite amount of fumbling with the frankly mystifyingly complex seatbelt configuration, off we began to trundle towards Anaheim. It was a bit stop-start as we left the airport, but in my experience, airport traffic always gravitates in that direction. But the fun really began when our driver, I didn't catch his name, but I suspect in his own mind it was Mario Andretti, made it out onto the highway. I had read in a variety of road trip travelogues that the use of indicators was seen as more of a courtesy than a requirement on American roads, but this didn't really prepare me for Mario's cavalier approach to changing lanes. Everyone knows the old adage about the shortest distance between two points being a straight line, or so I believed, until this particular driver demonstrated his credo that it was in fact a zigzag, as he routinely but seemingly randomly decided to dart from one side of the highway to the other. He didn't actually appear to be gaining any advantage by doing so, but perhaps he was being pursued by a giant imaginary alligator. In addition to his unique approach to steering, he was also intent on proving that he was a top-class multitasker, as he seemed to be trying to get some sort of world record for the most phone calls and text messages, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a few emails thrown in there for good measure, made or answered during a single journey. By the end of the journey, the entire family looked oddly reminiscent of Christopher Lloyd's wild-eyed Doc Brown, while the upholstery of his van must surely still show the marks of passenger fingernails as they clung on for dear life. Eventually, though, we made it to the hotel, checked in, settled into our rooms, and as you know now, promptly spent the whole night awake.